Okay, so last week I talked about this grouping of the Noble Eightfold Path into three arenas of sila, samadhi, panya, or ethical conduct, meditation, and wisdom. And we started to explore the first of the three factors that are grouped under the headings of ethics, sila, ethical conduct, And I emphasize that these are the relational aspects of the path because they're about how we show up in the world, how we engage uh, with each other, how we make a living, how we speak, how we interact. So last week uh, I focused just on right speech because as many of you were sharing, this for most of us is a very challenging uh, aspect of the path. So today, unfortunately, we only have one session to explore both right action and right livelihood. But in some ways, right action is relatively straightforward. So I'll just give you a a fairly concise overview of it and we'll focus more on the third one, which is right livelihood. And as I was just saying, as we explore all of these path factors, we start to really appreciate and experience for ourselves how integrated and uh, mutually supportive they all are. And this is uh, actually highlighted in the suttas too. So in relation to right action, I'll read you just one, a couple of paragraphs pointing out this connection between right view, right effort, and right mindfulness particularly. So it says, right view is the forerunner. And how is right view the forerunner? One discerns wrong action as wrong action, and right action as right action. This is one's right view. And what is wrong action? Killing, taking what is not given, Illicit sex. This is wrong action. One makes an effort for the abandoning of wrong action and for entering into right action. This is one's right effort. One is mindful to abandon wrong action and to enter in and remain in right action. This is one's right mindfulness. Thus, these three qualities right view, right effort, and right mindfulness run and circle around right action. So it's pretty clear that first we have to see, we have to have right view, what it is we're doing to discern skillful from unskillful. We need mindfulness to know in the moment what are we actually doing here. And then as many of you were sharing in your check-in, takes quite a lot of effort sometimes to keep orienting our actions towards the skillful and away from the unskillful. So right action there was um, defined quite simply as not killing, not stealing, not engaging in illicit sex. And you might notice the connection to the five training precepts that I shared last week specifically the first three. I undertake the training precept to restrain, to refrain from destroying living creatures. I undertake the training precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. And I undertake the training precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. 
So the first of these is to abstain from intentionally killing any sentient being. And I've heard that the definition of life, of sentient being there, is any creature that if we were to lift a hand to try and strike it, would move away. So it includes things like insects, but not plants. You know, plants have some degree of sentience, but not enough to um, avoid us. So this definition of living beings is pretty wide. Animals, birds, fish, insects, as well as humans. And it takes us out of our normal human-centric or anthropocentric perspective on the world, cultivates empathy because we understand just as we ourselves cherish our own lives and don't want to be harmed, so too does every other living being. So this right action in terms of not killing, again, is fundamentally rooted in compassion, in non-harming. Sometimes uh, there's a question around vegetarianism in relation to this precept. Um, Pretty obviously not killing living beings. If we're eating meat, we're eating dead, non-living beings. How does that fit? And just to say that there's a broad range of interpretations there. So many in the actual suttas, the instructions for monastics were to not eat meat known to have been specifically killed for the monastics, so intentionally killed. But otherwise, they were to eat whatever was offered. So if somebody served meat from the family stew pot, presumably that was okay. But if there was a sense that an animal had been slaughtered intentionally to serve the monk, that was not okay. It's a little bit of a gray area because I'm not sure how you would always know whether it was specifically killed for you. But basically... As with all of these trainings, the invitation is to look and see for ourselves and explore for ourselves what makes sense. So I understand people like His Holiness the Dalai Lama are not specifically vegetarian. Um, Others uh, very specifically are, but there's no hard and fast rules in, in the suttas that I'm aware of that say you have to be vegetarian. So again, the onus is on us to make our own decisions there. And again, the the second aspect of right action, uh, not speaking, uh, sorry, not stealing, or to refrain from taking that which is not given, again opens it out into a much broader range of more subtle actions of not taking what's not given. So again, it's inviting us to really pay attention, to be mindful, to be clear, is this thing really offered or not? So somebody I was talking to recently was planning an overseas holiday and she came into her apartment foyer one day and there was a whole stack of travel books on the coffee table in the foyer, including one for the destination that she was going to go to in a couple of weeks' time. And she noticed that impulse, oh, that's handy. I'll just uh, take a look at that. And then she realized, hmm, is that really freely given? She didn't see a sign saying free books or free to a good home. So she actually restrained because it wasn't clear were those really available or not. So this training in paying attention is something really freely offered or not. We start to refine beyond gross levels of stealing 
to really noticing is this form is this available or not and then the last one uh, refraining from sexual misconduct again it's rooted in the principle of non-harming so the term illicit sex involves uh, refers to any sex that involves harm either to ourselves or to others so obviously coercive forms of sex sex with minors who can't freely give consent sex with people who are committed to other people so anything that involves breaking of vows adultery it doesn't include things like premarital sex or same sex relationships it's not about uh, social conventions it's really is there harm or not that's the the deciding uh aspect of whether something is illicit sex or not and also just worth pointing out that the pali words here kame sumichachara kame su doesn't literally mean sexual it means sensual so all sense pleasures illicit sense pleasures so some teachers um expand this precept to really invite us to look at different forms of addictive behavior different ways that we get caught in compulsive desire so it can include addiction to food for example or perhaps addiction to shopping or to mobile phones and devices and technology and to computer games or even to overwork you know all these different ways that we get caught in compulsive relationships to things to sense pleasures So again you might start to get a sense that all of these trainings are endlessly refinable. And really they are uh the whole of the path all of these path factors are helping us to release what are known as the three root poisons the three core negative energies that if we look are really the basis for all of our unskillful actions so i think somebody referred to them earlier but these three root so-called poisons are greed hatred and delusion or ignorance and as i was saying when we look at the different ways that we act unskillfully if we do the postmortem mindfulness and we keep tracing it back and tracing it back usually we get to one or some combination of greed hatred and delusion so just to uh make the point that the it's talking about the three root poisons or the three root defilements and greed and hatred and delusion these are pretty heavy words and it's not that uh, as in some traditions the sense of um sin in the buddhist tradition there aren't sinners there are unskillful actions so very clear to not identify with these qualities the buddha referred to them as adventitious defilements and that word adventitious means that they're visiting they're not inherently who we are they arise in the heart and mind due to causes and conditions and the good news is that we can train in creating the causes and conditions that help them release that help them move along so they don't have to define who we are 
but we do need to be able to recognize them as quickly as we can so that as you were pointing to we don't end up acting out on them so as we know these energies can have an enormous effect on our lives when they're not seen and they're really what keep us spinning in habitual unconscious reactions so um, some of you may be familiar with it um, some of the images in the tibetan tradition of the wheel of life samsara this endless spinning around in um, stress distress and suffering this wheel at the root of it at the center of it at the hub is often depicted three animals a cock a snake and a pig and they're chasing each other around in circles with their tails in each other's mouths so that's a very graphic illustration of how these energies are spiraling around each other keeping us caught in same old same old the snake in that iconography is pretty clearly aversion or hatred perhaps less uh, obvious the cock the rooster is the symbol for greed because the rooster is just peck 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 maybe looking for a hen in there as well but basically looking for different forms of sense pleasure and the pig is the um symbol for ignorance or delusion because it just kind of snuffles around with its snout in the muck and its floppy ears hanging over its eyes so it's clueless as to where it's actually going so that's just another way of thinking of these three different energies and again to point out that each one of them covers a whole spectrum of intensity so the word greed for example is not only the most addictive intense kind of craving at one end of the spectrum but any kind of wanting in the mind any kind of moving towards any kind of enhancing holding on to prolonging grasping clinging these are all included in greed and just to point out that this doesn't mean that we're not supposed to ever experience anything pleasant or to ever enjoy any sense pleasure but to notice when the sense pleasure comes if there is that tendency to want to hold on to it to enhance it in some way or fear that it's going to leave so different ways that we get caught in relation to it those are all aspects of greed the second root poison of hatred or aversion is the opposite movement so rather than the moving towards with greed there's the pulling back or the striking against so my understanding the literal word that's translated as aversion means to strike against so it's rejection pushing away and again at one end of the spectrum the most intense murderous hatred or rage right through to just the faintest traces of aversion frustration resentment and so on it also includes all forms of fear because again those are pulling away from something so panic anxiety um those are also included in aversion and then the last one ignorance or delusion again is a whole spectrum so at one end the most intense um psychiatric or pathological levels of delusion some of which seem to be manifesting in certain world leaders at the moment we can see that as an example of pretty intense uh being 
ignorant and deluded, locked into our own worldview, not seeing clearly. And then at the other end, just more minor forms of, say, daydreaming or fantasy or just not really being being spaced out, not really being present with what's going on. Those are more minor aspects of delusion. And then everything in between. So all of these, uh, all of the trainings laid out in the Noble Eightfold Path are really helping us to see these root poisons clearly and how to release them so that ultimately the heart and mind become completely and utterly free of them. And this is Nibbana, awakening or liberation. It's the heart-mind where greed, hatred, and delusion are completely uprooted. And in case that sounds a little bit lofty or distant or abstract, it's good to keep remembering that this Noble Eightfold Path is a training. And it's a very holistic one that uh, is developed right here in our actual everyday lives. And I think the Buddha really made this clear by making right livelihood, right livelihood one of these eight path factors. Because he understood that we, most of us spend a significant amount of our time, of our lives, engaged in making a living. So we need to pay particular attention to this aspect of our lives. Because as Gil Fransdell points out, he says, in general, the things that we do repeatedly have much great, greater consequence than the things we do only once or a few times. The effects of those repeated actions may ripple further out into our society and go deeper into our hearts. So remembering from a few weeks ago what the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. In the same way, what we repeatedly do and say is strengthening those tendencies even more strongly. So this uh, right livelihood then is the last of the three ethical factors of the path. And in the suttas, there's not a huge amount of information given about it. It's defined quite minimally in terms of the actual texts. There's more emphasis for lay people than, uh, sorry, for celibates, for monastics than for lay people. But one of the things it does say is to Avoid any way of making a living that harms others or is dishonest in any way. So in terms of non-harming of others, the suttas specifically mention five types of business or trade to be avoided. It says a lay follower should not engage in five types of business. Which five? Business in weapons. Business in human beings. Business in meat business in intoxicants, and business in poison. These five are pretty obviously somewhat gross types of of business that cause harm on a gross level. So uh, dealing in arms, in slavery, in butchery, in selling alcohol and drugs or poisons. I don't think too many of us here are currently making our livelihoods in that area. So we can get a, a tick there. The second aspect of right livelihood is to look at how are we doing our business, not just what are we trading in, but how are we doing it. And so here the emphasis is on 
One discerns wrong livelihood as wrong livelihood and right livelihood as right livelihood. This is one's right view. And what is wrong livelihood? Scheming, persuading, hinting, belittling, and pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. So it's any form of deceitful or trickery or manipulative behavior in the way we do our business. So you might notice it has a uh, uh, direct link to right speech. So not harsh speech, not belittling, it says here. So overall then, as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, for a lay follower, the Buddha teaches that wealth should be gained in accordance with certain standards. One should acquire it only by legal means, not illegally. One should acquire it peacefully, without coercion or violence. One should acquire it honestly, not by trickery or deceit. And one should acquire it in ways which do not entail harm and suffering for others. And I I would add to that, or ourselves. And I think it's worth highlighting here that in terms of wealth, uh, the Buddha did not advocate poverty as a virtue, unlike some religious traditions. He recognized the suffering that comes from not being able to take care of one's own basic needs. So he had no issue with people acquiring wealth, and he had some very wealthy uh, supporters. The issue is more to take care that acquiring wealth is done in ways that don't cause harm, and that it's used skillfully. So he says... uh, A householder, knowing his or her income and expenses, leads a balanced life, neither extravagant nor miserly. Knowing that his or her income will stand in excess of his or her expenses, but not his or her expenses in excess of his or her income. So this attention to am I living extravagantly or miserly, can I find that middle way of balance? So right livelihood is not only about the specifics of how we make a living, but also more broadly our attitude to wealth, our generosity, our stinginess. And according to uh, Gil Fransdell, right livelihood more literally includes every aspect of how we live our lives, beyond just what we do for our income So he says, right livelihood is the most common English translation of the Buddhist expression sama ajiva. However, because ajiva means the way one lives, it encompasses more than just one's job or occupation. It includes such lifestyle choices as what we buy, consume, use for housing, and rely on for financial support. It also includes how we parent, care for our family, or live in retirement. When walking the Eightfold Path, the question regarding right livelihood is whether or not the way we live moves us towards more compassion, peace, and freedom. Is it nourishing? Does it support the development of ease and insight? Does it help us become a better, happier person? And does it help others? So we can see now how this whole field of right livelihood really encompasses 
all aspects of our lives and there are many nuances and subtleties to it and also potentially complications and challenges and conflicting values because we live in a society that's very different, uh, a very different context from the Buddha's time. And even back then he recognized that these teachings were swimming upstream, were swimming against the dominant values of mainstream society. And I think that's even more true today where we're so enmeshed in a capitalist society that values such as generosity and kindness and compassion and renunciation and restraint, equanimity and so on are not the uh, values of mainstream society. So inevitably, as we try to navigate the world, we are going to run into these challenges to uh, maintaining our values. So as a uh, way into exploring this more fully, I'd like to share some more of Gill's uh, writings here from his articles on right livelihood. And he suggests that we look at livelihood in terms of two modes of production on one side and consumption on the other. He says the primary activities we engage in to sustain our life are what constitute livelihood. These can be grouped into two categories, what we produce and what we consume. Production refers to what we create or engage in that provides us with the financial and material support for our life. And consumption pertains to what we buy and use in order to sustain our life and our lifestyle. So we'll be going into those two more fully in a moment. And I'd like to read you uh, a whole list of questions that he offers for reflection. And there's a huge amount in this. We could probably spend the rest of the course or another entire course just exploring these. But I'll share them with you as a starting point for our group discussion. And then during the week, you can continue to explore them in written format. So rather than trying to answer all of them, just hear the questions and maybe um, one or two will resonate with you or challenge you and you can just uh, hold those in mind. So in terms of production, he says, what work or activities do you engage in that provide you with your financial and material support? If you are employed... What do you, in quotation marks, produce? If you are a homemaker, what are you making? If you are retired with investments, in what have you invested? If you are a student, are your studies directed towards being able to do something that will provide you with a livelihood? And if so, what? What's your relationship to what you produce? What attitudes do you have towards your work? Does it inspire you? If so, how? Is it meaningful? If so, how? Does it help you become a better person? Does it benefit others? Can you think of ways that you benefit yourself and others through your work that you might be overlooking? What values do you express through the work you do? 
And what values do you wish you better expressed at work? So that's the production side. And then just for the sake of balance on the consumption side, again, a range of questions, but just notice what resonates. What do you consume, use, buy, or spend your time doing in order to both meet your basic needs and sustain your lifestyle? What motivates the choices you make in what you consume? How are you affected by what you consume? What values are expressed in these choices? What values do you wish were more a part of these choices? Does what you consume make you a better person? Does it benefit others in any direct or indirect way? So between these two arenas of producing and consuming, I'm guessing there's probably quite a lot that we could explore. So I'd like to finish here so that we have plenty of time to uh, explore these questions together in our group practice. So thank you for your attention.